Well, our text this morning is, uh, comes from Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through verses 34. Uh, we are just picking right up and continuing on with uh, the sermon series through Matthew that Brother Richard is leading us through. And I'm just preaching the next uh, text this morning in that series. So Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 34. Now as you're turning there, I would like you to call to mind a phrase that we have heard repeated multiple times in the last few weeks in the book of Matthew. And that phrase that Jesus says goes something like this. If you want to be first in the kingdom, you've got to be last. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to humble yourself and be a servant. We've heard that phrase said in several different ways in the last couple of chapters. We're going to hear it said again today in our passage. And I think it really sums up the message of these few chapters that we've been in for the past few weeks. So keep that in mind now as we read through our text for this morning. We're reading verses 17 through 34. Read along with me. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and then crucified. And he will be raised again on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for, the, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they went out to Jericho, and a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Then the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight, and they followed him. Well, there's three sections in our, in our text this morning, three different short stories that Matthew lumps together and tells them in these passages. And, uh, you know, sometimes when we read through the Gospels on our own, uh, when we, you know, maybe you're reading through them in your quiet time, or maybe you're reading through them in a small group Bible study or something like that, we come across these stories, and they seem to be so random. Uh, they, they don't seem to relate to one another. It just seems like Matthew is kind of, you know, just running roughshod, just throwing out these little stories left and right, uh, just to let you know what's going on. 
and, and you know, perhaps, perhaps that's what Matthew is doing, but I don't think that's what Matthew is doing. Uh, just kind of a little tidbit, a little, a little tip, when you're reading through the Gospels in particular, uh, on your own for a quiet time in a small group Bible study, and you come across these stories that kind of seem to be just random and, and roughshod, take, take a step back, look and see what comes before. What, what is Jesus talking about? Or what, what stories are being told before? What parable comes before those stories? And then what comes after them? And then see if you can find some kind of a common thread, something that weaves those stories together. And I guarantee you, just about every, you will find something that relates all three of those, or all of those stories together. And I, I think that's the case for our text this morning. So all three of these stories are trying to teach us something, uh, though they seem to be unrelated. But when you find out what the, the link is, that's the main point. That's what Jesus is trying to teach you. So with that in mind, let's look at this, these verses. Let's look at these stories and see what they have to say for us. So there are three points to the sermon, really simple, uh, laid out very simply. And the first uh, comes with the first story. The first point of the sermon is the kingdom of God comes through suffering. The kingdom of God comes through suffering. In verses 17 through 19, uh, Jesus uh, is on his way to Jerusalem. It says he's on the road to go to Jerusalem, and his disciples are with them. And Jesus pulls the 12 disciples aside, and he tells them, he predicts, Uh, and tells them what is going to happen when they make it to Jerusalem. He tells them uh, about his death and resurrection. And this is the third time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus has done this. So this is the third time that Jesus has prophesied and predicted what is going to happen to him, that he's going to be crucified. Now, of this third time, the first time is in Matthew chapter 16, right after Peter confesses Jesus is Christ. The second time is in Matthew chapter 17. And then we have the third one here, in Matthew chapter 20. And each time Jesus predicts his death, each time he does that, he throws in a little bit more detail, a little bit more detail about what is going to happen. And so what I want us to see this morning is, is two things in particular that Jesus tells his disciples when he predicts his death this time that he hadn't told them before. Okay? So the first thing that Jesus, the first detail that Jesus gives us uh, for the first time in this prediction of his death is that Jesus mentions that he will be given over to Gentiles uh, to torture him. He hasn't mentioned before that he is going to be given over to Gentiles, but he tells us this time that he's going to be given over to the Gentiles. Now, it was a Roman law in that day, in Jesus' day, that a Jew could not sentence another Jew to death. So if Jesus was going to die, it was going to have to be by the command of a Roman. It was going to have to be by the command of a Gentile. And Jesus is foretelling that here. He's predicting that, and he's telling his disciples that he is going to be given over into the hands of the Gentiles. So that's a new detail that he tells. The second one uh, is that Jesus mentions that he is going to die a death by crucifixion. Uh, up until this point, he had not said, he had not told his, uh, his disciples that he is going to be given over to be crucified. Uh, that is certainly something that the Jews couldn't do. Crucifixion was a means of death that the Romans, a means of execution that the Romans would use. Uh, and so Jesus is uh, filling in this detail, that he is going to be put to death by crucifixion. So those are the two things that are unique uh, in those three verses that Jesus is telling us about his death. 
Now, it's interesting here that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. That's how Matthew starts this passage. In verse 17, he says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and then that detail is included again when he pulls his disciples over to the side, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, what's the deal? What's the deal about that little detail? Why is it important that Matthew includes this, that we know where Jesus is going? Well, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Jerusalem would be the place that the king would come uh, and that the Savior would die. And Jesus is telling here, Matthew's telling us, uh, when he says that he is going up to Jerusalem, that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus is now set on mission to accomplish what God had sent him to the world to do, namely, to die on the cross. Jesus is single-minded about this now. He has honed in on what God has sent him in the world to do, to die on the cross, and he is on his way. The cross is right before him. Uh, he, is, he is on his way to die for the sins of the world. So that's why uh, Matthew mentions, and Jesus uh, tells us again, that he is on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is preparing himself, and he's preparing his disciples to go the way of the cross. Uh, and so, but why is it? Why, why uh, would Jesus uh, tell his disciples? Why would he predict his death again? Why would he tell his disciples that this is where, why they are going to Jerusalem? Well, two things. Two things, I think. Two reasons why. One, he is, I think he's preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. So his disciples know, Jesus has already told them two times, uh, they know that he's going to die. They know that Jesus is about to die. Uh, the scriptures say that they are grieved in their spirit that Jesus is about to go and die. But what they don't know is how gruesome and how uh, just worldly and awful that death is going to be. Uh, they don't know that it was going to be by the hands of the Romans. And they didn't know that it was going to be by means of crucifixion. And so I think in part Jesus is just preparing them for what's about to happen. Uh, he's, he's telling them graciously Listen, when we get to Jerusalem, it's going to start out really nice. You know, there's going to be a big party when I'm coming into town, but that party's not going to last very long. This, it's going to go south really quick. So Jesus, uh, it, it, he, by predicting his death, he's just preparing his disciples for what they're about to see, for what's about to take place. The second reason I think Jesus is predicting, predicting his death and telling his disciples this is that he's teaching them something. He's teaching them something very significant, and that is... What Jesus is teaching them is that the kingdom must come. The kingdom of God must come through self-denial, humility, and the suffering of the king. So, you know, oftentimes, and we've, we've read uh, several passages, and we've heard preach several passages in the book of Matthew where the disciples kind of, uh, you know, they kind of get a bad rap. Uh, they don't quite understand everything that's going on. So, Oftentimes, Jesus tells them, be quiet. Don't tell anybody what you're seeing. Don't tell anybody what you're witnessing yet because they don't fully understand what's going on in front of their faces, do they? So, you know, I, I think that's right. I think the disciples didn't fully understand what was going on. But I think sometimes by us, they kind of get a bad rap. You know, we think, oh man, Peter, he, uh, Peter was just dumb. You know, I mean, he, he had the foot-shaped mouth. He, uh, you know, he, he spoke out of turn all the time. He was way too zealous, all this different stuff. But, you know, it's important, I think, to take a step back and to see that sometimes maybe the disciples knew a little bit more than what we actually give them credit for. 
They knew a little bit more about what was going on than what we give them credit for. So what the disciples did understand is that Jesus was the king. He was the promised king. He was the promised Messiah. We saw that way back in Matthew chapter 16, right? Uh, Jesus is sitting around with his disciples and he asked them, who do people say that I am? Who, who, who is everybody saying that I am? And the disciples tell us who everybody thinks that he is. You know, maybe, you know, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're John the Baptist. Come back to life, you know. People were confused about who Jesus is. But the disciples knew exactly who it was. They, they knew exactly who Jesus was. Peter says, you are the Christ, the chosen one of God, the one sent to us from God. And you know what? Peter was exactly right. They knew Peter knew in that moment that, that Jesus was the king that God had promised. Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David is sitting on the throne, David, the greatest king in Israel's history, David is sitting on the throne, and God comes to him, and he says, uh, you know, David wants to build, build a house. He wants to build a temple for God. And, and God says, no, you're not going to build my house. I'm going to build you a house. Uh, and he promises David. He makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he says, uh, your son, your offspring, is going to sit on your throne forever. And he is going to rule over all nations forever. That's the promise that God made. The disciples knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the one sent from God, he's confessing, you're the king that we've been waiting for. You're the one that God promised our father, David, our king, David, that you, you're going to rule. You're going to sit on the throne and you're going to rule this entire world forever. And Peter was right, wasn't he? Everybody around him thought something different, but Peter was right. He knew exactly who Jesus was. Now, what they didn't understand or what they didn't see was exactly how Jesus was going to get on that throne. What they didn't understand is exactly who Jesus had to defeat in order to get on that throne. You see, the Jews, when they were looking for their Messiah, and the disciples, when they were looking for their Messiah, uh, they thought Jesus, uh, they thought the Messiah was going to be some political military king, some political military ruler who was going to come up in arms and overthrow the Romans, right? So the Romans occupied and ruled over the Jews in that time. Uh, and so uh, the disciples thought Jesus is going to be this military ruler uh, who overthrows the Romans and who's going to bring the glory days of old Israel back, right? Uh, Jesus is going to be the new David. Well, uh, they were confused about who their enemy was. They thought their enemy was Rome. But what Jesus is telling them is that, no, you have a much greater and a much older and a much more crafty enemy. And that enemy goes all the way back to the garden. Uh, the serpent, uh, the tempter, Satan. That's the enemy that I've come to defeat. That's the enemy that I've come to do something about. You see what they didn't expect. They knew that Jesus was the king, but what the disciples didn't see is that that king that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was also the suffering servant that was promised in Isaiah chapter 53, that famous chapter of the scripture that we read every Easter. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was, uh, he was wounded for our transgressions by his stripes, we are healed. That same suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is the same person as the great king that is promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's what the, the, the disciples just weren't making that connection. And Jesus is trying to, to make that connection for them by telling him that this king had to go to the cross 
This kingdom of God has to come through the suffering of the king. They were confused about who their enemy was that Jesus came to defeat, and they were confused uh, about the identity of who uh, that, that, that Jesus, that same king, was going to be the suffering servant. Well, what in the world does all of that have to do with me and you? <laughs> Here we sit uh, several thousand years later. Uh, what, what does this prediction of Jesus' death have to do with us? Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus is teaching us this morning uh, that, you know, if, if the Romans were who Jesus came to overthrow, it would be no big deal for us today. You know, it would be a mere historical point uh, that Jesus came and led some rebellion and overthrew the Romans. Uh, the Romans are not our enemies today. But brothers and sisters, we do have a common enemy with the disciples, and that is sin. And this makes a difference to us today because Jesus is teaching us that he is the only way to the kingdom of God. He is the only way to gain access to the Father. And that way comes through his suffering, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. I, I don't know if you noticed, but there was a verse on the screen right before I came up. Uh, John fourteen six, a very familiar passage of scripture where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the only way to gain salvation from our sin. Sin is our ultimate enemy, and Christ defeats that enemy on our behalf through his death and resurrection. And he is the, hope, he is the only hope that any of us have to gain entrance into the kingdom. And that kingdom comes through our Savior's suffering and death and resurrection. So I think that's the main point that, uh, that we see in, in verses 17 through 19. That's how it has to do with us. Well, you know, this news demands a response, right? This, this news of this kingdom that comes through the suffering of the king demands that we respond in some way. Well, the next two stories illustrate for us two different ways of responding to this news. So our second point comes from this second story in verses 20 through 28. And our second point is this. It's an inappropriate response to the kingdom. And that inappropriate response is spiritual pride. So an inappropriate response to the kingdom is spiritual pride. In these verses, we read that the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, comes to Jesus with a request for her sons. So James and John were two of the disciples. Uh, Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. Uh, I can only imagine uh, what their personalities must have been like. Uh, but here we're introduced to a new character who I like to call Mama Thunder. Mama Thunder comes to Jesus and she has something she wants to ask him. And no doubt it is her sons that have put her up to this. Her sons are right there with her, right? And so uh, James and John send their mom in to make this request that James and John sit at the right and on the left hand of Jesus when his kingdom comes in its fullness. Why in the world would James and John send their mom in to do this? <clears throat> and that's a, that's, this is not the main point of the text. This is just the way my brain works. Why in the world would you send your mom in to do this? So I was thinking about that this week, and I came up with two, two reasons why I think James and John sent their mama in. One is perhaps they're playing on Jesus' compassion. So some of the commentaries that I read said that perhaps uh, this woman is related to Jesus in some way, maybe an aunt or something like that, uh, or a cousin something. 
And, you know, so we see, and we see in the text, you know, mom comes up, she kneels down before Jesus, and I can only imagine in her sweetest and kindest voice says, Jesus, I've got something I want to ask you. So perhaps James and John here are, are playing on Jesus' compassion, thinking, you know, well, if she asks, maybe he'll, he'll give us what we want. He'll give us, he'll grant our request. You know, perhaps that's it. <clears throat> what I really think it is, uh, is the same reason that I sent my mom to do my dirty work when I was in high school. <clears throat> so when I was in high school, I, actually it was the day before I left to go to college. Uh, I was driving back home. Actually, I was coming from Laura's house, from my wife's house, and going back to my house. Uh, and I noticed along the way that a police officer is following me. And, you know, I do what I'm supposed to do. Hands 10 and 2, seat belts buckled. I'm doing five miles under the speed limit just to be sure, to make sure my speedometer is accurate. And, you know, all is good. Well, I come up to this stop sign, this fork in the road, and there's a stop sign, and there's a row of bushes planted right along the stop sign there. And so in order to be able to see, to make sure I don't pull out in front of anybody, I roll through the stop sign a little bit to be able to peek around those bushes, and then I go. Well, as soon as I do that, the blue lights come on. And I got a ticket for coming to a rolling stop through a stop sign. <clears throat> well, you know, I, I tried to play on uh, the police officer's compassion, saying, you know, officer, I was just trying not to endanger somebody. I couldn't really see. You know, I wasn't speeding. You know, I had my seatbelt on and all this stuff. Well, that wasn't working, so... Uh, silly me went the uh, the more abrasive approach and I said you know do you have a quota that you're trying to meet you know why won't you let me out of this ticket well that did not work um yeah so I got a hundred and twenty dollars worth of a ticket for rolling through a stop sign <clears throat> so I get home and I'm trying to think of a way how in the world am I going to tell my parents uh you know how how can I make this go away well I remembered my mom's uh, famous motto, and still to this day, if you ask my dad or my mom, what's your, what's your life motto? My mom's life motto is, if mama ain't happy, there ain't nobody happy. <laughs> so I think I connive away, hey, if I can get my mom on my side, then maybe she can fix this little problem for me. Well, long story short, <clears throat> I wound up not having to pay that ticket. Moms just have a way of getting things done that we can't do as children. They just have a way of getting things done that we can't as children. So I, I suspect that James and John send mom in to do their dirty work because they think, hey, you know, she can convince Jesus to grant our request. Well, that's kind of silly, but hey, you know, maybe whatever it's worth. So what are they asking? What is this request that, that James and John come and ask? Well, they're asking for a seat of honor and glory when Jesus sits on that throne. So they know that Jesus is this great king that was promised back in 2 Samuel 7. They know that he's going to sit on the throne of David and rule the entire universe forever without end. And they say, we want a piece of that action. Uh, they want recognition. They want a piece of that glory. And so they come and they ask Jesus, grant that we can sit in seats of honor in your kingdom, one at your right hand and one at your left. Well, Jesus, uh, Jesus responds very kindly, uh, kind of oddly, but he responds very kindly. He says, you don't quite know what it is that you're asking. And then he turns to James and John and he, he says, are you willing to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? 
Now that is a weird way to respond to that request, isn't it? What is this cup that Jesus is talking about? Well, a cup is an Old Testament image of God's wrath. So if you look back on Isaiah 52, you can read about the cup of God's wrath. Uh, you can look forward to the book of Revelation when, uh, when, Jesus, uh, or when John is talking about the bowls of God's wrath being poured out on all the world. The cup, the bowl, is an image of God's wrath that's going to be poured out on sin. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm about, I'm about to head to the cross to take God's wrath for the sins of mankind. I am about to suffer greatly. Are you willing to take part in that? James and John, probably not fully realizing what Jesus was asking of them, they say, sure, yeah, we'll do that. We can take, we can take the cup. And Jesus responds probably very seriously and says, Indeed, you will drink my cup. And we know from the scriptures later on in the book of Acts, we see that James uh, was actually the first Christian martyr. Uh, He was the first one of the disciples who was put to death because of his preaching. Uh, Jesus was who he said he was. And then we know from John uh, that John actually wasn't martyred for his faith, but he suffered greatly throughout his life. We know that he was put in exile on the island of Patmos, which is where he wrote the book of Revelation that we have that concludes uh, our scripture. Uh, He suffered greatly uh, for the cause of Christ. And so Jesus tells them, indeed, you will drink my cup. You will suffer greatly for my name. Well, that's what Jesus's response was. And then we see that, uh, you know, the disciples' hearts here are extremely prideful. James and John are responding to this news that the kingdom comes through Christ's suffering with great spiritual pride. Well, we can respond to that news in the exact same way, with great spiritual pride. Uh, You and I especially can be prone to spiritual pride. So we can't let spiritual pride be a part of our response to Jesus. Well, how can spiritual pride be a part of our response to Jesus? A couple things here that I think. One, like James and John, uh, we act, we can act like God owes us something. So when you pray, what do you ask God for? Uh, Do you go to him and do you say, God, give me, give me, give me. God, do this, do this, do this for me. That is acting in a way that God owes us something, in a way that uh, we deserve God's goodness. That's one way that spiritual pride can be our response to the gospel. Second, we can think that God exists to do our bidding. Lord, do this when we pray. You know, why don't you do this when he doesn't act the way that we expect him to act? Brothers and sisters, God does not exist to do our bidding. Our God is the sovereign king of the universe, and we are his servants. We exist. We were created to do his work, not the other way around. The third way that I think that spiritual pride can be a part of our response to Jesus is that we can think that we are better than other people. So you remember the Pharisee that Jesus told us about earlier in Matthew? He comes to the temple and he begins to pray. And he prays with outstretched arms, standing in the temple as loudly as he can. Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. He says, I thank you that I am not like this Gentile over here. Well, the Gentile comes and he has a very different response, doesn't he? He says... God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And which one did Jesus say walked away justified that day? 
we can act like we are better than everybody else, that you know, our sin is not as bad as the sin of this person over here, and so we think we deserve a little credit from that. And then lastly, I think a, a way that spiritual pride can be a part of our response to Jesus is uh, that we want to rob Jesus of his glory. That's exactly what James and John are doing here. They're, they're saying, you know, I want a part of this, the piece of this glory, you know. I want a piece of what you are a part of, Jesus. And, uh, you know, they thought that they deserved some credit. Perhaps they thought they were going to be generals in the army, you know. Uh, they, they wanted a piece of credit uh, for what they, what they have done. And brothers and sisters, we can react in the exact same way today. We can think that we deserve credit uh, for something that we have done. But the scripture tells us that even our best efforts are as filthy rags before Christ. So how can we spot spiritual pride in our lives? How do we spot it? When it creeps up, how do we know that that's what it is? Well, number one, what do you pray for? How do you pray on a regular basis? What's your disposition uh, towards God when you pray? Are you praying only asking God to give you something? or do something for you? Or are you praying like Jesus did in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. There's a big difference there, isn't there? So watch, when you pray, what do you pray for? Uh, that, can, that can go a long way in telling you how your heart is uh, in response to the gospel. Lastly, Jesus uh, responds to the disciples' pride by pointing us to himself. So the other disciples hear what James and John's request was, and uh, the scriptures tell us that they become indignant. They become angry at James and John. Now, I don't think they become angry at James and John because James and John are, you know, dirty, rotten, prideful glory hogs. No, they're angry at James and John because they asked Jesus first, right? They want a piece of that too. They don't, they don't want James and John to sit there because they want to sit there. What about us, Jesus? You know, there's 12 of us total, not just two. Well, Jesus pulls his disciples over to the side, the scripture says, and look at what Jesus says to him. Look down in verse 26, or I'm sorry, uh, verse 25. But Jesus called them to him. So Jesus gathers his disciples together and he says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, people who are lost, they're the ones who seek glory. And when they receive that glory, when they see, receive that position of honor, they lord it over people, right? They're, they're harsh leaders and harsh rulers. Verse 26, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So Jesus takes, in that familiar thing that he's been saying several times in the past several chapters, he flips leadership on its head in the kingdom. You want to be great in the kingdom? You've got to be a servant. You want to be first in the kingdom? You've got to come last. You want to be a ruler in the kingdom? You've got to first be a slave. That's Jesus' idea of leadership. Not only that, he points us to himself. Jesus points us to himself here. He says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man is an image that the disciples would have well known. It's, it's a prophecy from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, the Son of Man is that great king from 2 Samuel 7. Uh, Daniel 7 and 2 Samuel 7 are talking about the same, same thing. This promised one of God, this promised king of God who would rule over all nations is shown 
uh, in Daniel chapter 7, riding on the clouds with a scepter in his hand and a sword in the other, and he defeats these crazy beasts that come up against God's people, signifying that this king was going to defeat the enemies of his people, right? So Jesus uses that term, son of man, to specifically say, this king that you've been longing for, this king that you know that I am, he came not to be served, but he came to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. He came so that the shackles of sin and death might be broken loose and his people might be set free from their bondage of sin. Ransom is a word that means to be set free from bondage. It's a payment that must be paid. And again, we are all held captive by our sin. We are bound in our sin. And Jesus came and through his death and suffering and resurrection on the cross, uh, from the cross and from the grave, uh, to pay our redemption price so that we might be set free from sin and the consequences that we deserve from God. He does it by paying our price and the penalty that we owe. And he is the ultimate example of humility and service. So that's an inappropriate response that we see that the disciples have. They act out of spiritual pride, seeking glory from themselves. Well, the next story, starting in verse 29 to the end, uh, they tell us of an entirely different response. And that's our third point this morning. It's an appropriate response to the kingdom. Spiritual humility. An appropriate response to the kingdom. Spiritual humility. Seeking mercy from the Savior. So here in this story, we see two blind men who are sitting on the road and no doubt they are probably begging for money or for food. Uh, They're sitting outside the camp along the road waiting for people to come by uh, and they're begging them uh, for livelihood. They're begging them for money, for something to eat. And these people here, these two blind men here, uh, that Jesus is coming by. And what do they do? They cry out and they say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. What a contrast in the response of Jesus, of the blind men and of the disciples. Where the disciples act out of spiritual pride going to Jesus and say, hey, give us a position of power and authority and glory. These blind men say, have mercy on us. Where the disciples are self-seeking prideful glory hogs, these blind men are humbled to the dust at the sight of their Savior And they cry out to him, have mercy on us. We see in this story that the proper response to Jesus is spiritual humility. Well, what is humility? I think this is probably one of the most difficult things in the Christian life to do. Uh, So maybe a good definition can get us started on on, uh, cultivating a heart of humility. Humility, I think, simply is this. Christian humility is the honest assessment of ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility is an honest assessment of ourselves in light of God's holiness and our own sinfulness. If we humble ourselves, we realize, like these blind men on the road, that we are in great need. We are in great spiritual need. We can't do anything on our own. We are not self-sufficient. We are needy people, and we need Jesus to come and to show us mercy. So, how can we cultivate this response of humility to the gospel? How can we cultivate? Now, my wife likes lists, okay? So, she always loves it when a pastor or a preacher gives, them, gives her a list. Okay, the next week, do these four or five things, you know. And uh, pastors and preachers, myself included, tend to shy away from that because 
Uh, you know, salvation is not found in anything that we do. It's not found in checking off a list or anything like that. But I'm going against my conscience here, and I'm going to uh, submit to my wife in this and give you guys a list of four different things that I think you can do to cultivate a heart of humility. Okay? So work on these four things. If you're taking note, notes, here comes four things for you. How do we cultivate a heart of humility? One, we are to recognize and to confess our need of Christ every day. Recognize and confess our need for Christ every single day. You cannot save yourself. I can't save myself. We need a Savior. Remember that old hymn. It's one of my favorites, Rock of Ages. And there's a line in that hymn that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. There is nothing that we can do to earn favor in the eyes of God. Uh, We are dirty, rotten, pathetic sinners, and we all need a Savior. So, one, how you cultivate a heart of humility, recognize and confess your need for Christ every single day. Two, make it a regular practice to pray and to thank God for what He has done. Make it a regular practice to pray and to thank God for what He has done for you. Uh, Don't just go to God and say, give me, give me, give me. Do this, do this, do this. Recognize that God acts every single day on your behalf. He does great things for you, and he shows you mercies every single day. So to cultivate a heart of humility, go to him and give him thanks for that. Praise him for what he has done in your life, for the mercies that he has shown you. Yeah, number two, make it a regular practice to pray and to thank God for what he has done for you. Number three, when something you do is, uh, the, something that you accomplish is, is successful, give the glory to God and realize that it's not from your own hands, but that it's God working through you. When you accomplish something and it's successful, give the glory to God. Uh, you know, uh, in Scripture, we are commanded uh, to, to give God praise and glory and that it's not our own doing. It's not by our works that we gain favor in the eyes of God, that it's on Christ working through us and on our behalf. So uh, anytime we accomplish anything, we're to recognize that, that it is God's grace to us, it is God's mercy to us that he is working through us. So that's, that's the third thing that we can do to cultivate a heart of humility. And the last thing, probably the most obvious thing to cultivate a heart of humility, serve others. Serve others. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus says back in verse 28 that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And not only that, to give up his life as a ransom for many. All throughout the scriptures, we are commanded to love others because Christ first loved us and gave up his life for us. So we are to follow the example of our servant king by serving each other. Ask yourself, what can I do this week? What can I do today to be an encouragement uh, and to be of service of my brother and sister in Christ? Uh, That is a great way to cultivate a heart of humility and to root out sinful pride in your heart is be others-focused. Seek to serve others and have the attitude and disposition to serve others. Well, it's interesting what happens next. The crowds try to silence uh, the men, but that makes the men cry out in even more in greater desperation. They cry out all the louder, and the crowds begin to think that Jesus is too important for these beggars. But what does Jesus do? He has compassion on them, 
And he goes to them and he heals them. He grants them what they need. And look what happens next in verse 34. Verse 34 says that uh, Jesus had pity, touched their eyes. Immediately their eyes recovered sight. And then they followed him. These men uh, gave up their lives. They left everything then to be followers of Jesus. In closing, let, us, let me point us forward just a little bit, uh, just to illustrate this point even more. It's the night before Jesus uh, is to be given over uh, to the hands of the Gentiles to be uh, beaten and flogged and crucified. He is in the upper room with his disciples, and he is about to eat his last dinner with them and initiate the Lord's Supper. And guess what the disciples start to do? They start to grapple with one of each other about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. They start to argue with each other. Who's going to have more glory in the kingdom? And what does Jesus do? He puts on an apron. He gets a pail of water. And he goes and he washes their feet. He was about to go to the cross to die for their sin. But before he does it, he bends down and he washes their feet. Brothers and sisters, look at your servant king. He is a mighty king. He is a loving king. And he is a servant king. So respond to him in faith and humility. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this word and what it means to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a humble people who seek hard after you, uh, who do away with spiritual pride and respond in faith and repentance and humility. We pray these things in your name. Amen.